Chapter Twelve of No Clue. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. No Clue by James Hay. Chapter Twelve. Hendricks reports. In his book-lined, loosely furnished apartment Sunday afternoon, Hastings whittled prodigiously staring frequently at the flap of the gray envelope with the intensity of a crystal gazer. Once or twice he pronounced aloud possible meanings of the symbols imprinted on the scrap of paper. Something E-D-L-Y, D-E something, he worried. That might stand for repeatedly demanded, or repeatedly denied, or undoubtedly denoted, or a hundred. But that pursuit is the core of the trouble. They put the pursuit on him, sure as you're knee-high to a hope of heaven. The belief grew in him that out of those pieces of words would come solution of his problem. The idea was born of his remarkable instinct. Its positiveness partook of superstition, almost. He could not shake it off. Once he chuckled, appreciating the apparent absurdity of trying to guess the criminal meaning, the criminal intent, back of that writing. But he kept to his conjecturing. He had many interruptions. Newspaper reporters, instantly impressed by the dramatic possibilities, the inherent sensationalism of the murder, flocked to him. Referred to him by the people at Sloanehurst, they asked for not only his narration of what had occurred, but also for his opinion as to the probability of running down the guilty man. He would make no predictions, he told them, confining himself to a simple statement of facts. When one young sleuth suggested that both Sloan and Webster feared arrest on the charge of murder, and had relied on his reputation to prevent prompt action against them by the sheriff, the old man laughed. He knew the futility of trying to prevent publication of intimations of that sort. But he took advantage of the opportunity to put a different interpretation on his employment by the Sloanes. "'Seems to me,' he contributed, it's more logical to say that their calling in a detective goes a long way to show their innocence of all connection with the crime. They wouldn't pay out real money to have themselves hunted if they were guilty, would they? Afterwards he was glad he had emphasized this point. In the light of subsequent events, it looked like actual foresight of Mrs. Brace's tactics. Soon after five, Hendricks came in to report. He was a young man, stockily built, with eyes that were always on the verge of laughter, and lips that sloped inward as if biting down on the threatened mirth. The shape of his lips was symbolical of his habit of discourse. He was of few words. "'Webster,' he said, standing across the table from his employer and shooting out his words like a memorized speech. "'Been overplaying his hand financially. "'That's the rumor. "'Nothing tangible yet. "'Gone into real estate and building projects. "'Associated with a crowd that has the name of operating on a shoestring. "'Nobody'd be surprised if they all blew up. 
"'As a real estate man, I take it,' Hastings commented, slowly shaving off thin slivers of chips from his piece of pine. "'He's a brilliant young lawyer. That's it?' "'Yes, sir,' Hendricks agreed, the slope of his lips accentuated. "'Keep after that, tomorrow. What about Mrs. Brace?' "'Destitute, practically. In debt. Threatened with eviction. No resources.' "'So money, lack of it, is bothering her as well as Webster. How much is she in debt?' "'Enough to be denied all credit by the stores. Between five and seven hundred, I should say. That's about the top mark for that class of trade.' "'All right, Hendricks, thanks.' the old man commended warmly. That's great work, for Sunday. Now, Russell's room? Yes, sir, I went over it. Find any steel on the floor? Hendricks took from his pocket a little paper parcel about the size of a man's thumb. Not sure, sir. Here's what I got. He unfolded the paper and put it down on the table, displaying a small mass of what looked like dust and lint. "'Wonderful what a magnet will pick up, ain't it?' mused his employer. "'I got the same sort of stuff at Sloanehurst this morning. I'll go over this, look for the steel particles, right away.' "'Anything else, sir, special?' The assistant was already halfway to the door. He knew that a floor an inch deep in chips from his employer's whittling indicated laborious mental gropings by the old man. It was no time for superfluous words. "'After dinner,' Hastings instructed, "'relieve Gore, at the Wallman. Thanks.' As Hendricks went out, there was another telephone call, this time from Crown, to make amends for coolness he had shown Hastings at Sloanehurst. "'I was wrong, and you were right.' he conceded handsomely. I mean about that Brace woman. Better keep your man on her trail. What's up? Hastings asked amicably. That's what I want to know. I've seen her again. I couldn't get anything more from her except threats. She's going on the war path. She told me, tomorrow I'll look into things for myself. I'll not sit here idle and leave everything to a sheriff who wants campaign contributions and a detective who's paid to hush things up. You can see her saying that, can't you? Wow. That all? That's all right now, but I've got a suspicion she knows more than we think. When she makes up her mind to talk, she'll say something. Mr. Hastings... Crown added, as if he imparted a tremendous fact. That woman's smart. I tell you, she's got brains, a head full of them. So I judged, the detective agreed dryly. By the way, have you seen Russell again? Yes. There's another thing. I don't see where you get that stuff about his weak alibi. It's copper riveted. He says so, you mean. Yes, and the way he says it. But I followed your advice. I've advertised, through the police here and up and down the Atlantic coast, 
for any automobile party or parties who went along that Sloanehurst Road last night between 10.30 and 11.30. Fine, Hastings congratulated, but get me straight on that. I don't say any of them saw him. I say there's a chance that he was seen. The old man went back, not to examination of Hendrick's parcel, but to further consideration of the possible contents of the letter that had been in the gray envelope. Russell, he reflected, had been present when Mildred Brace mailed it, and, what was more important, when Mildred Brace started out of the apartment with it. He made sudden decision. He would question Russell again. Carefully placing Hendricks's package of dust and lint in a drawer of the table, he set out for the Eleventh Street boarding house. It was, however, not Russell who figured most prominently in the accounts of the murder published by the Monday morning newspapers. The reporters, resenting the reticence they had encountered at Sloanehurst, and making much of Mrs. Brace's threats, put in the forefront of their stories an appealing picture of a bereaved mother's one-sided fight for justice against the baffling combination of the Sloanehurst secretiveness and indifference and the mysterious circumstances of the daughter's death. Not one of them questioned the validity of Russell's alibi. With the innocence of the dead girl's fiancé established, said one account, Sheriff Crown last night made no secret of his chagrin that Byrne Webster had collapsed at the very moment when the sheriff was on the point of putting him through a rigid cross-examination. The young lawyer's retirement from the scene, coupled with the Sloan family's retaining the celebrated detective, Jefferson Hastings, as a buffer against any questioning of the Sloanehurst people, has given society, here and in Virginia, a topic for discussion of more than ordinary interest. Another paragraph that caught Hastings' attention, as he read between mouthfuls of his breakfast, was this. Mrs. Brace, discussing the tragedy with a reporter last night, showed a surprising knowledge of all its incidents. Although she had not left her apartment in the Wallman all day, she had been questioned by both Sheriff Crown and Mr. Hastings, not to mention the unusually large number of newspaper writers who besieged her for interviews. And it seemed that, in addition to answering the queries put to her by the investigators, she had accomplished a vast amount of keen inquiry on her own account. When talking to her, it is impossible for one to escape the impression that this extraordinarily intelligent woman believes she can prove the guilt of the man who struck down her daughter. Just what I was afraid of, thought the detective. Nearly every paper siding with her. His face brightened. All the better, he consoled himself. More chance of her overreaching herself, as long as she don't know what I suspect. I'll get the meaning of that gray letter yet. But he was worried. Burn Webster's collapse, he knew, was too convenient for Webster. It looked like pretense. Ninety-nine out of every hundred newspaper readers would consider his illness a fake, 
the obvious trick to escape the work of explaining what seemed to be inexplicable circumstances. To Hastings, the situation was particularly annoying because he had brought it about. His own questioning had turned out to be the straw that broke the suspected man's endurance. Always blundering, he upbraided himself. Trying to be so all-shot smart, I overplayed my hand. He got Dr. Garnet on the wire. Doctor, he said in a tone that implored, I'm obliged to see Webster today. Sorry, Mr. Hastings, came the instant refusal, but it can't be done. For one question, qualified Hastings, less than a minute's talk, one word, yes or no. It's almost a matter of life and death. If that man's excited about anything, Garnet retorted, it will be entirely a matter of death. Frankly, I couldn't see my way clear of letting you question him if his escaping arrest depended on it. I called in Dr. Wells last night, and I'm giving you his opinion as well as my own. When can I see him, then? I can't answer that. It may be a week, it may be a month. All I can tell you today is that you can't question him now. With that information... Hastings decided to interview Judge Wilton. He's the next best, he thought. That whispering across the woman's body. It's got to be explained, and explained right. As a matter of fact, he had refrained from this inquiry the day before, so that his mind might not be clouded by anger. His deception by the judge had greatly provoked him. End of chapter 12 Recording by Roger Moline.